This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash supertrain. Seep, seep. Bleep, boop, beep. Pooty wheat. Is it hard doing two podcasts? Boy, I would have to ask the master. That, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid I don't know who you mean. <laughs> this is um, th- this is the first time in all the years that we have started our podcast without saying hello, but but rather with some some strange bird noises. They were um, I don't know, kind of tropical, kind of domestic, a little mix mm-hmm. of the old world and the new world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're giving me some good insight into cheep, how to have cheep. more than one podcast at a time. Yes, and. <laughs> yes and no that's all I got <laughs> uh, yes and hmm. uh, there's so much to talk about and now I can't remember whether I talked about it on my other podcast already jeez oh, this is what I was worried about oh, did I did I already talk to you about the time that I or was mm-hmm. that was that the other podcast yeah <sighs> how do you feel about scrambling eggs oh is it okay to when you take you take the egg in your right hand yeah. And you tap it on the edge of the bowl. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Stop right there. Hmm? You, you, you crack that egg on, a, on the edge of the bowl, Merlin. You're going to get all of the bacteria from the bowl right in the egg. You get uh, cross-contamination. You get cross-contamination. I, you know, on the way in today, I was, I was sitting here. I'm drinking, I'm drinking my coffee in, my, in one of my uh, beer steins. Uh, and I realized that probably 15% of of everything I put in my body is coffee mold, right? I've got coffee mold. I'm breathing coffee mold at all times. Oh, God. And I'm drinking coffee mold from a variety of sources. The primary source is I've never cleaned my coffee maker. So it's full of coffee mold. John, that, then, that has a huge impact on the quality of your coffee. You've got to clean your coffee maker. And then, and then I, I buy... a. Or oh, boy, I see. I'm I'm so used to lying since my my political days. Oh, you know it's going to be a long road. The road I, to truth that I can't even I can't even remember what's a lie and what's not. But <laughs> <clears throat> I've never bought a. This pound. is going to be a good one. <laughs> I've never bought a pound of coffee in my life. I just about I I started talking like. When I buy coffee, as though I ever buy coffee, you're like well, you're like Hal Holbrook doing Mark Twain, except you're doing yourself. <laughs> I, I think it reads better if I say I buy a, a, a pound of coffee at a time. I'll buy a pound. So what happens to me is that someone gives me a pound of coffee. That is how I get coffee. People give me coffee, and the reason people give me coffee is that coffee, as you know, on the West Coast in particular, is one of the primary. Schwag elements. Oh, yeah. Right? You go to a thing and they're putting together a gift bag or a gift basket. And the first thing they do, the first thing they put in a gift basket is a pound of coffee because there's a tremendous coffee surplus here. 
There's so much freaking coffee, and everybody is a coffee roaster or a coffee grinder or a coffee importer. And so they've just got warehouses full of coffee. And everywhere I go, somebody's putting a pound of gourmet coffee beans in my hand. And so I bring it home, and there was a while, there was a while there where I had like 30 pounds of coffee in my freezer. And then, I, then there are all the people that are like, never freeze your coffee. Don't, what are you talking about? You freeze your coffee. It's going to ruin the, and I'm just like, you know what? I've got 30 pounds of coffee. I'm good. I'm good way past the apocalypse, right? Everybody, people are going to be gnawing on each other's shin bones and I'm going to be sitting on top of a giant pile of frozen coffee. <laughs> I like that image. So I'm confident in my choice. But Seeing starving zombie-like creatures shuffling towards you and your butt's nice and cold. Nice and cold. I got, you know, coffee make, frozen coffee makes a good ice pack, too, if you sprain, sprain a wrist or something. Oh, life hack. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so lately I've had some, co- I've had some coffee and it's been sitting out on the counter ah, for a month and a half. And from what I know about coffee mold, which I have learned from reading magazine articles and from hearing you make that sound whenever I talk about it. And presumably what I've learned from Dan Benjamin telling you about coffee mold, because I'm sure that conversation's happened. I realize now that that coffee that's been sitting on my counter for a month and a half is probably 50% mold. And I just make it and drink it and it tastes like mold. Tastes you have like- so many in the chain of custody from uh, whatever coffee grows on to, to, to being expelled through you. The chain of custody is just riddled with problems. There's Ugh. all kinds of places for the introduction of, of different kinds of unsavory things. It's you don't, terrible. You're not, you're, not keeping, you're not keeping a tight lock on that. And this isn't even coffee that's been through a civet's butt. Right. Uh, so I just, and then I'm thinking, like, <clears throat> then there's all the coffee cups I leave lying around, both in the garden and in my office. There's just got to be so much coffee mold. I, if, I had, if I had some they live glasses, but instead of seeing aliens among us, it, uh, oh, they, right. they could just see coffee mold. Part of it might also be the nature of the stein. I don't want to introduce new things here, but, you know, the stein, it's probably like a pottery kind of stein, right? It's not like it's not like a, a, a plastic or something. It's probably somewhat porous. It's a pottery stein. It's a pottery stein. So so there could be all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, invaginations that the mold could get into, maybe start a family. Mm-hmm. I Well, I mean, there's there's coffee mold under my fingernails. Uh-huh. I'm not worried about it in the porous surface of my of my, my, my my daughter will just start chewing. We're not at the movies yesterday. She starts chewing on a fingernail, and I'm like, "Do you you've been downtown for three hours? Yeah. Do you really want three hours of San Francisco in your mouth?" <clears throat> well, I've got I've, worse than that. I went to the I went to the ICU yesterday to visit a friend in intensive care. I spent. You know, a few hours. Well, that wasn't funny, but for some reason, when you said, I thought you were doing that like for a friend. <laughs> no, you were you were actually going to see another person. It wasn't you. It wasn't you. I went. I went to the ICU yesterday for a friend. I, I went to the insane client posse yesterday. Uh, no, I, 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 to visit a friend, and and I was in there, and you know, and it was um, it's very intense, right? You put on a, you put on a, a, a rubber gown and gloves and a face mask and a face mask with like a shield. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not a nice place. But then I was in there for 
I mean, it's a wonderful place in the sense that if you are, if you need the services that they provide, that is where you want to be. You would ra- much rather be there than sitting on top of a pile of frozen coffee beans. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then as I'm walking out of the ICU, you know, what, and it's just like you take the stuff off and you deposit it in a biohazard container and you walk through a pressurized aperture and all this stuff and then you and then I'm I'm on my way to the parking garage and I'm just chewing on my fingernails. Oh and God. I was like and I caught myself doing it. I'm like, huh. Well, oh. welcome, Mersa, to the otherwise completely toxic environment inside of me. I hope you can fight it out with the coffee mold. Oh. And we'll see which which toxin, which neurotoxin is the uh, is the one that survives. That starts, oh my God. starts subtly, subtly affecting I can't how dive I too deep on this, John. I got, I got to deal with this on another show. <laughs> but uh, I started this weekend for, I believe, the possibly the fifth time uh, I, I decided uh, to read the first 10 pages of Infinite Jest. Mm. And this time I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to get oh, to at yeah. least, oh, at least sure 20, 30 pages. Oh, yeah. Go, go deep. I think deep I, I can finish a chapter if I break it into pieces. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in that beginning part, he's in the office, you know, um, talking about getting the scholarship. And he has this flashback of when he was a little kid. And this is Hal has a flashback of when he came. He's like a toddler and comes out of the basement screaming something. And his mother can't hear what he's screaming because she's like running a tiller in the yard. And he's holding a giant, <laughs> a giant piece of mold. He broke off the part of the basement and has like orange and yellow spikes in it. And, he's, and he starts screaming, I ate this, I ate this. And for some reason now, that's hitting me extra hard because that the predominant image of mold in my head from the last few days is a giant piece of basement mold with uh-huh. like yellow stalagmites on it. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you say coffee mold, it could be something, it could just be one of those like little booger looking droplets. But, but, yeah. but, now, but I'm thinking about uh, eating basement mold. It that's a, that's that, a yeah. long book, John. Did you ever read it? Uh, no, you know, I, I read Gravity's Rainbow. Oh, you're, you, you know what? You clapped out. You don't have to read any other books. Yeah, and that's exactly how I felt about it. I, in 1992, I went into the bookstore here that used to be where they, they destroyed the entire building to build a subway stop uh, for the subway that still hasn't opened. And, and uh, deep, in the, deep in the painful analogy district. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. And uh, uh, it was the bookstore where um, everybody that worked there was a LARPer. Uh, there were 50 cats there, and it was owned by a woman who was a very nice woman, but also had a um, – she was not a nice woman, let's be honest. Um, uh, cat, cats, bookstore, dander, I can see yeah. that the science on that is not adding up to nice person. But she had – she was someone who kept a coterie of younger men working at her store that she was, I think, running through her function machine, if you know what I'm saying. Mm. Uh, very very much like a chain, chain mail uh, culture. I think I think chainmail figured highly there, but I spent a lot of time in this bookstore, um, and uh, that's where I discovered Sinclair Lewis, not him personally, but his. You know, that was when I first arrived in town, and I didn't have any money. I would go there and I'd buy the whatever the whatever the thickest book on the ninety nine cent rack was, and uh, Lewis at Zenith was one of those, and I became like a. That Sinclair Claire Lewis fan, but that's a different story. No, but this, I, I, is this where you found your rainbow? So I went in there one time, and I was like, and I and there was a you know the the guy with the beard and the long hair, uh, 
who was shaped kind of like a Hershey's kiss was behind the counter. And I was like, what's your favorite book, man? And he was like, Oh, my favorite book. Um, it's a little book you might've heard of called gravity's rainbow. <laughs> and I was like, gravity's rainbow. Huh? Hmm. <clears throat> I have heard of it and I have been avoiding it like the plague. And he was like, Oh, do not, uh, do not tarry another moment. My good sir. And he went and like uh, dislodged himself from his perch and went and got me, I think, his personal copy or some special copy of Gravity's Rainbow and brought it out. And he was like, voila, here you are. Good luck. Godspeed. Mm. And I spent <clears throat> so long trying to read that freaking Gravity's Rainbow. I read it. I read that's the That's the book where I was reading it in four different places at one time. I was reading it, then I was reading I was I was reading back 50 pages, then I was reading back 150 pages and then I had started it over again all at the same time. Uh. So, uh so having done that, when Infinite Jest came out, I was like, I am I will not be fooled again. Uh-huh. I won't get fooled again. Mm-mm-mm. Same boss. <laughs> and so so but now I feel bad about it. Because uh, it's uh, it's held up. You know, here, here's the thing. Let's let, let me put my cards on the table. As long as you're out of politics and being honest, I might as yeah. well be honest too. Okay, go um, ahead. The, Did you uh, ever read Gravity's Rainbow? No, I haven't even cracked the spine on Crying of Lot Forty Nine. Oh well, that's a that's a delightful delightful read. Yeah, I know, I know. I have a lot of these. I have a lot of these in my post college age. I've bought a lot more books than I've read. But um, oh my god, it was an epic, epic fresh air. So, um, Fresh Air on Friday, as you know, on Friday, sometimes Terry Gross isn't there. And uh, so it was Dave Davies in for Terry Gross on Fresh Air, which, you know, happens a lot of the time these days. Dave, I think, Dave Davies of the Kinks? That's right. He got punched right in the face. No, he, ho- he hosts Fresh Air? No, different Dave Davies. Dave Davies. He's, and they, they refer to him as, a, what do they call him, like a, a contributor. They don't even refer to him as the, like, substitute host. It's pretty weak. You are talking about Fresh Air as though it's a program I have ever heard. Okay. Is that how, is that how we're going to do it? But go ahead, go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> what? You've never heard of Cat Butt? <laughs> the band? You're not familiar with Cat Butt? <laughs> cat I'm butt. very surprised. You seem like someone for show. You seem like someone who enjoyed music. This is very surprising to me. Dave Davies is in for Terry Gross. Like, okay, you sit this one out. Everybody else can listen. All Dave right. Davies is in, is in for Terry Gross, and it's on the occasion of the release of this new film. With the with the kid from Facebook and the guy from Freaks and Geeks, um, a Facebook movie where, where there it's a uh, it's about a, fam- a famous week of interviews. The last, the end. It's called the, I think it's called the end of the tour, and it's Jason oh, Siegel. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I, I hear good things about this movie. Yeah, right, right, right. So it's it's kind of about that movie, and it's kind of about you know DFW. Yep. And so what they put together on this day when Dave Davies was in for Fresh Air was an interview with David Foster Wallace. From t- from 1996 mm-hmm. to celebrate the release of the paperback of Infinite Jest, it was a fantastic interview as always. And then they talked to Jason Siegel about uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall, which had just been released on DVD in 2009. So it's a pretty classic. W- what is this show about? Fresh Air. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. But I listened to it, and uh, you know, I've read a lot of his short stuff. I don't think I've ever. I never finished one of his novels, but I love, you know, his essays. Oh my god! Well, you, you, I told you know what I did wrong in January. Yeah, I reread a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. 
Right. And for, that, the fourth, for the fourth time. Right, right before, before you I were... stepped on the gangplank of a cruise ship. And I remember you walking onto the cruise ship <laughs> and seeing in your eyes the fact that you had just read a supposedly fun thing I will never do again. Uh-huh. I, could see, I could see it in the way you carried yourself across the gangplank. And I was like, my friend, free yourself from free yourself from mental slavery. Oh my god, it was but uh anyway, boy is that ever a fantastic essay. Yes it is. My god, it's it's amazing. I mean like okay, let, let's be white guys and talk about how David Foster Wallace is a good writer. But mm. like his ability, his elevated language, but he's elevated without sounding snooty and he's he's clever without sounding snarky and the way that he he observes and describes a situation the language he uses to describe even the most mundane situations is just it's an utter utter delight it's total like mouth candy i feel the words in my mouth when i'm reading it i I love it i thought you know everybody says this is like the best book of the last 25 years or whatever and like i i I own two copies of it one of which is being used to hold up part of a bed right now yeah and uh and uh and uh, i thought this time i'm gonna try it again i don't think i'll make it through but I'm, i'm trying well uh when you're done i'll let you i'll i'll loan you uh my complete copy of uh, Google Gulag Archipelago. Oh my goodness, that's yeah. a long one, huh? Yeah, which is which is currently uh, I I'm pretty sure it's basic. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's like a large part of my living room furniture. That's a it's that's just, a nice way to wind down at the end of the day is mm-hmm. is to just really really tuck into a multi volume <laughs> bit of sad. Yeah. Oh well, and and you know I'm I'm halfway through <clears throat> I'm halfway through Mein Kampf by by uh the swede hmm. um it's a sweeted it's a sweeted version of mein kampf did you not did you not get on board the uh the um the my struggle train a couple of about a year ago Maybe this might be my fresh air you're gonna have to give it to me in pigs and bunnies what are, <laughs> what are you talking about so uh <clears throat> so this guy carl ove carl ove nausgaard um, That's the fakest name I've ever heard in my life. He's literally named Carl Ove Snowsgard. Nausgard. 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 Is a uh, is like a depressed Norwegian mm. guy. Yes, about, of course I heard about this. Right about our age, and uh, like, and in the style of like depressed Norwegian, he's sort of impossibly handsome. In a having smoked two packs of cigarettes a day kind of way. Looks like a wise catcher's mitt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know who looks like a, ca- a catcher's mitt is mm. Kevin Spacey. I was watching that political program of his. Yes. Where he talks directly into the camera. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that his face looked like a catcher's mitt, I could not stop seeing it. And I really kept feeling like it was distracting me. From the program, sometimes. I don't get that from him. I think he looks like a thumb with a wig. Well, now look at him as a catcher's mitt, and mm-hmm. imagine, imagine like a uh, not a and not even a baseball catcher's mitt, but like a softball catcher's mitt. Just imagine oh. a softball just mm. going right in there and just nestling in between his cheeks. I think you'll see it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I was in New York about a year ago, and I was being I was being courted by a young book editor. Who uh, is very smart and young. For the purpose of writing a book? Uh, he was courting me. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes, for the purpose of, well, he was courting me as, as a potential author uh, for him, a writer, let's mm-hmm. say. And he's been very supportive of me, and he's, uh, you know, he likes uh, the things that I've written, and he's like, you know, let's write a book. I am a book editor. I work for a book publisher, or I'm sorry, not a publisher, but like a, um, 
What a like it's the equivalent of a manager. They get your book published. An agent. An agent. There you go. That's the word. And so we're walking around Park Slope, Brooklyn together. And he's, you know, he's a young person, but he's wearing big glasses. So it, it kind of feels like, you know, I always imagined that my, that my book agent would look like Rob Reiner. Mm-hmm. And this one is, uh, is younger, but he's got big glasses on. So it, it feels very book editory. And we're just sort of wandering around Park Slope and we pass a bookstore and he's like, oh, let's go into the bookstore. And I'm like, this is perfect. I'm in New York. I'm walking around with my book agent. We're going to walk into a bookstore like la di fucking da. And we wander in. And of course, he immediately greets all the employees of the bookstore. Uh, and, they're, and they all love him, right? They're, they all know him and they're, they're all chit-chatting and like, oh, have you heard from this author? And they're talking books with each other. All these young people working in books, and I'm just feeling like this is so sophisticated. I am, I'm, I'm here from the West. This is the, that's the way I love to go to New York, right? You go to New York and you're just, you just get sort of swooshed into some cool New York thing where it feels like, of course, that the, the, the writer from Seattle is here traipsing around. Never written a goddamn thing, but here I am. And he says, oh, have you read, have you read my struggle yet? As though I were a writer who read all of the books that were mm. coming out. <clears throat> yeah, it must have felt a little like a test. You know? Well, but, you know, it's that type of... It's, it's say, I've been doing it for 25 years in music. Like, oh, have you heard the new Cat Butt? And I would always be like, oh, uh, tell me more. And then, you know, that's... Every time I go into a record store, somebody puts five records in my hands that I don't want. But so I'm standing there at the counter and I'm like, oh, my struggle, huh? You mean my struggle? That's a very familiar book title. Um, I think I remember uh, reading a version of my struggle written by an author named Hitler. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's a new epic novel written by this depressed Norwegian guy about your age who has just exhaustively chronicled his entire life with total honesty. And I was like, and I could just feel my stomach sinking like, oh, first of all, that's my gig. Yeah. And second of all, why do I, oh no. And so pretty soon three huge volumes are put in my hands. Each one costs $35. Three hardbound books. Oh, now here's the test. Hmm. Right? I mean, <clears throat> no, I mean, because, I mean, if you go, um, like, these are pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just or like $100 for books. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, <laughs> sign me up. I'm having a great day. And so I walk out of there carrying uh, the Manhattan phone book. And I started to read them. And I read the first one. And I, and I got uh, about halfway through the second one. Um, and they really are. Uh, uh, he really does talk about his life pretty much on a day-to-day basis. Like, and then when I was seven, I sat in the kitchen and waited for my cereal bowl to be filled by my mother, who was emotionally absent. Ugh. And I was... It sounds like Bergman I, without an editor. It was really, woo! And then, uh, and then Scott Simpson uh, tweeted about it, and I realized that Oh, we, we were all of us, all of us depressed dads were reading it all at once. 
and that <laughs> and that sort of bounced me out of it for a minute. I was like, oh, I can't. So now it's sitting on my bed table. I'm like, there he is, Carl. Carl Nose Carl Ove Nosgard. Nosgard. And then he, you know, and he was doing a book tour, and and it was one of those book tours that every kind of every middle aged author dreams of, where he's being swept around the world, and people are genuflecting. I can hear it in your voice. Yeah. I can hear it. So right? uh, yeah, and and you, you know, want that and, to be you a little bit. <laughs> well, and the thing was, the entire time he was sort of disavowing that he liked this at all. Oh, well, of course he would. Yeah. Uh, you love being swept around. I do like being swept around. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Uh, so now, now I understand it to be six books long. I only have the first three. Oh my goodness! Better get cracking. <laughs> so so I'm so busy. It's not, and this shows this shows what a what a ignoramus or philistine I am. But it isn't a thing where you kind of feel like you get the flavor after one or two. It is not a thing that you even feel like. So this is the thing about Gravity's Rainbow too, right? Where you read, you are 500 pages into a book and you have no idea what the flavor is yet, right? Like you're reading. And you are reading and reading and reading, and you don't know what's happening, and you don't know, you don't even know if you like it yet. And you've invested 500 pages, you've invested, you know, weeks of your life, because it's not 500 easy pages. And it's not that like Carl Nausgaard is uh, hard, not Gravity's Rainbow, like it's not difficult to read, but it's, but you're in there and you're like, do I like this person? Do I like this world? Do I feel like this world, even if I don't like it, do I feel like it's important? Do I feel like I need to? I hate that. I hate that feeling. <clears throat> I hate that feeling because I feel like I'm, uh, when, that, when I do that, I'm battling this uh, kind of peer pressure in my head, whether it's real or not. That like this should be something where I, where I get to be the guy who suggests this book to other people and then seems surprised that they haven't read it. <laughs> I feel that kind of pressure that I'm like eating my vegetables when I read a book like that. I you know you know me I like to be punished and I like to suffer. Yeah. And so it's really it's really when you thrive in a lot of ways. Yeah, so I have done I have I have uh, experienced a lot of culture that that it was uh, it was true suffering for me to endure it, but I but I understood that through suffering I was going to be delivered to another place. Mm. That that the that the piece of culture that I was consuming was a ferry boat that was taking me from my, the prior land the, to this this dark new land. You, you don't you might not know what land. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I was not paying the ferryman until he got me to the other side. Mm. Don't you know? even fix the price. That's right. So I'm on the you know I'm on the book and I am in and I am saying or I'm on the 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 piece of art. And I'm saying, you are punishing me, you art, but you may deliver me to a <clears throat> to to Candyland. And a lot of the times, you know, the the, the fucking thing sinks, and you have to swim back. Mm. Uh, but but I, I the the jury's still out on this because because, and I think this is the big the big que- the D- David Foster Waller's question, the Dave Eggers question. Now the Carl Naus Ausgard, Ausengard, um, uh, 
and the, and it's a and it's a primary question of the work that I do and of you do, which is <clears throat> at what point like all art is somewhat autobiographical. We have stripped away a lot of the uh, a lot of the artifice from it, and and have arrived in a place now where autobiographical, uh, like w- w- the autobiography with almost no additional work. Oh, well, you can be somebody <clears throat> who writes a memoir that's a thing on its own without it being about like my life in pro wrestling or something. Yeah, right. It's just like I'm just a I'm a schmo, and here's my autobiography. People have been doing that for thousands of years, but now it seems like that is that is um, well, well, everybody is an autobiographer now uh, <laughs> because we're all we're all <laughs> documenting our own lives constantly, and to what end and if you're if you're not adding something else to it, which is either like a philosophical take or okay, I get it. Yeah, you know? this has been an angle for you for a while in your in your in your uh, your reflective ruminative moments. Is the, like what are we producing? Yeah, beyond this sort of ephemera. Yeah, and 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 with with Dave Eggers and and David Foster Wallace. I mean, at, I read those guys at a, at obviously earlier in my life at a time when it seemed like what they were doing was magical because they were as you say like turning language the language itself was beautiful mm-hmm. and then their life experiences or the way their minds worked were interesting and beautiful in a way and and uh and that was enough um they didn't you know they didn't turn it into a novel about some other people it was it was a diary more or less but that that diary then was elevated, and uh, and uh, now I feel like we're entering into a realm where the diary doesn't even have to be elevated; it just has to be long, mm. um, or it has to be comprehensive. And I don't know if that if that quite passes muster with me. Mm. Yeah, I don't read a lot of those, but I, but, but I, I think I think I know what you mean. And I'm thinking about stuff that I. I had a class in, um, I guess my third year of college that was really great, but but difficult, um, which is called long poems, and it was a you know a survey of long poems, and it mm-hmm. had all the usual sp- suspects in it, you know, and kind of doing like a, eh, you know, a, a uh, close reading of things like the Wasteland or things like William Carlos Carlos Williams's Patterson or Leaves of Grass. You know, mm, but leaves of grass. Well, so leaves of grass is on the edge. Now, Patterson is great. The wasteland is a riot. But like, even leaves of grass. But I have to just say, like, so going back to like what the people were actually making, <clears throat> I just got to say, man, I feel like you, you clap out with, um, uh, what's the pension? Pension book. Oh, oh, gravity's rainbow. Gravity's rainbow. Like I never read that. But also like Keats's Endymion. Reading uh, this, this, these. It's all couplets. And it's just really, really extreme. It's an extremely long undersea adventure by Keats that involves lots of like, you know, tridents and stuff. And it was, but it it really felt like I was eating my vegetables. Mm -hmm. It was, it was not fun. It was, it's one of those things though, like where you're like, it wasn't even like a hate watch kind of thing. Whatever, he's Keats, he's great. But like, you know, I kind of like the other kind of stuff better. These epic poems just feel like, Oh, it's just like this grind. And I have to say that now, even at the time, now I get to do what? I get to drop that I've read Keats's Endymion. Look at me. 
Like mm. I get, I get the, the white ribbon for that. Like I'm the guy who, who read that, you know, I don't know. I just, it's just some of the, <laughs> sounds unkind, but I don't, I don't want the Keats haters or the, the Keats fans to get on me. You but know, like, they're out there. I know. I know. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't read like I used to. I don't know how you find the time to read. You seem like you're very occupied with lots of different things. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I do, I do try to. I I admire that that version, that earlier version of a of a of a fully fledged adult who is who is up with the current reading. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if that fully fledged adult is still if that's still a model you know obviously there are there are plenty of people plenty of adult people who are still living according to that but i don't know if we're minting any new people like that but then i get and i just describe my young uh new york agent who who's still living in that world but it seems like that version of being a grown-up where you've got a you've got a uh you've got the the times literary supplement and you are you're you're working through it every every week. Well, I'm thinking about you think about like an Algonquin roundtable kind of situation where you got a bunch of people who are very competitive, very smart, very clever people who are doing a lot of writing. And if you worked at the New Yorker, you were doing a lot of reading too. And mm-hmm. being the kind of person who was like extremely up to date on and had an opinion about virtually everything that came out. People were just reading, reading, reading all the time. That's what they did for a living. You know, people forget that writers also read. Like, there's a lot of reading involved. Yep. And, and you know, but the thing is, like, you look at that and everybody looks at that and goes, oh, wow, look at that. They're smoking and wearing hats, you know, and uh, and, and talking about, you know, life. And that's that's really fascinating. But I don't know. I mean, uh, how, how incredibly different is that from somebody like me? Well, I don't want to – I'm not saying this is noble, but, like, I love how great TV is right now and how there's – there are – if you look, there are great movies um, and I feel I like being kind of up to date on what good TV shows are, you know. And, well, and that's the thing. If you were, if you were Dorothy Parker sitting in the lobby of a hotel, ashing your cigarette in someone else's tea, um, you didn't have all that TV. You also felt like you had to know about, and you didn't also you weren't reading like BuzzFeed, right? There's right. a lot to keep up on now. Yeah. Yeah, there is. You got you to go to Clickhole and see all the funny stuff that those guys are coming up with. Ha, yeah. ha, ha. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm just, I can only speak for myself, which is that, like, I've read a lot of stuff. I think I've probably oh, read yeah. more than a lot of people have read. I had to read so much in college, some of which was amazing. I mean, I'll read me some Absalom, Absalom any day. The Absolute, Ambassadors, Absolute. you can keep it. Like, but there was, there was so many, like very, Moby Dick, not a fan. Like all the things that you have to read that were extremely long and varied in there, how great they were or how much you could even understand it. But you had to because that was the process. That's what you're going to. You, mm-hmm. get, a, you get a Voltaire occasionally and that's a lot of fun. But there was just a whole bunch of stuff that, that I had to read. But I have to admit, I mean, a lot of that was because I had to read it for class. And also it made me feel a little fancy. It made me feel a little bit fancy that a kid from like Central Florida was reading the the great authors, and some of it uh, was really great and enjoyable. Some of it was very edifying. But there's there's a part of me that was I kind of wanted to be snooty. That was that was one big piece of it. Being able to talk about Umberto Eco made me feel smart. Mm. And I I, I mean I, there's still God there's so much I get from that stuff every day. All this all, all the great books, but like I have to admit that at the time I was doing it, it wasn't that noble. I it wasn't like I was trying to become a judge or something. It was because I wanted. I, I liked feeling smart. 
And one way to feel smart is to read a lot of stuff that other people will not admit that they don't understand. Mm. So I'm not, I can't speak for other people, but, you know, I think there will be these au courant things that come along sometimes that everybody's supposed to, you know, it's almost like an emperor's new clothes kind of situation where you're expected to say, well, of course, of course, <coughs> of course, I mean, how many times have I read Ulysses? My goodness. But, you know, that's work. It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I think literacy is changing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I always had the, I always had a, a, a difficult relationship with the people who read for, uh, read in the way that you're describing Re- to to read as a um because because i i i i was i was often in a situation where i would be sitting in a in a salon of some kind listening to people talk about books and realizing that they were talking about books as a kind of in a, in the same way that that people talk about sports and they were or, the smart- or maybe in the same way, you know, when, when Pitchfork was at its snarkiest, I haven't read Pitchfork in years, but when, when they first started to become so annoying, it was almost like, you know, so you could learn about these records in order to know what to roll your eyes about. Right, right, right. Well, to learn about the records or to learn about the books as though knowing about them was its own thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's all, the, the point of art is always that you have an emotional, that, it, that is a door to an emotional state or an intellectual state that you didn't have prior access to. And so to read a book and to not feel something is fine, but that's the evidence you're looking for. I read this thing and I did not feel something. Okay, that tells me something, right? Or, or I did feel something and here's what I felt, either negative or positive or something I can't describe and so forth and so on. Like you're, those, those pieces of art are always portals to a better understanding of your emotions or your, or your mind. And, and so, and, and music and, and books and paintings and all, all of that. And so listening to people talk about books as though they are commodities uh, to, you know, and, and what's it, or, or, and this is the same about record collectors, like that what's important about them is the date they were published, the author's prior relationship with some other author, the number of uh, books that it sold, the, the the way that that book fits into the canon in terms of how it's its relationship to its time or other books. I mean, all that is is also interesting, but it's addenda. And for a lot of people, it's not addenda. For a lot of people, that is the primary inter- interface with the literary world or the painting world. Or oh, the, just, maybe that's why you say it's like sports where part of the joy of it is like the more complex it becomes like, this, this is exciting. Like, cause the more I know about this, the more I want to know about this. Well, and so, and, and so, but what's, what was frustrating for me is that I would sit in these situations where I would be with smart people who were, who were, and I've, I've told you before, right. That, uh, that uh, when I was growing up in Anchorage, I, I had a Vespa. And so I, I, I thought I was a mod and I I loved the clothes that the mods wore mm-hmm. and I had the only Vespa in Alaska. So as far as I knew like I was the only mod in the whole state in the 1980s. At least the only one that I knew. And then when I moved down to Seattle and I met some real mods, I was so excited and I was like, I'm a mod and I found the mods. I was young. And I went to a mod party or two and 
and then I was so disappointed to discover that they were incredibly boring. The mods were not smart, even, mm-hmm. or interesting. They were just fashion-y people that had chosen a weird fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, to be around book people and have the conversation be like, have you read uh, this book? Well, yes, I did. I read that book because uh, uh, I, I earlier read this other book, and then this book, of course, is the next book that you read. Oh, well, <laughs> did, you, did you realize that the author of that book actually uh, did – you know, had this other book. Oh, yes, I read that book. Did you read this book? And and they were playing a game, which was the the connector game, right? That you read a book, and then you know, you know that you know that that book is pointing to a different book in the in the way that people think about the literary culture. Mm-hmm. And so you are playing this this reference game where you're hopping from lily pad to lily pad, and the and the other person is also playing that game with you and trying to get ahead of you and reference a book in advance of where you're going to be in this conversation. And, and you are, you're, you're using books as sort of social chess pieces with one another. And I would kind of sit in these conversations and, and every once in a while lean in and say like, uh, Oh, that, you know, that book was really interesting. It made me sort of question like, my masculinity in a way and and the conversation would come to a screeching halt and everybody would kind of look at me and then they'd go back to talking about the next book and the and the publisher of that book and you know that they were not interested in talking about what the books did to them and that is what passes for intellectual conversation a lot of the time you're not you're not really exploring the work, and in a lot of cases, I wasn't sure that they had read them. Um, but that the but hmm. the but it, it, would, it reminds but, me a little bit of the way people sometimes talk about comic books, where when you're talking about a comic book or a character or a story arc, it mostly leads you to the next character or book or story arc. And you're right; there's not a lot of times where you sit down and you know talk about how it made you feel. Yeah, and you and you and so much of that comic book talk is like this artist, this inker, this this you know, where it fits into the canon and never where it resides in mm-hmm. your, in your heart or if it even does. And that's the thing. Like uh, people give me, give me stuff all the time and I read it and it's the rare thing. And it should be rare that you read something and go like, Oh fuck. Now I am forever changed by this. Like this got inside me. Um, and for me, unfortunately, if a thing doesn't get inside me, then I don't want to talk about it. I don't care about where it fits in the canon. I don't care who the, you know, I don't care that this is a this is a work in somebody else's work pile. Like I'm looking for the thing that 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 nabs me, and if it doesn't, then I don't care about its relationship. Um, and that and that that makes it hard for and that's part of the problem of me with fan fanboy or that's how I, that's why I can't be a fanboy exactly because how many great works are there not that many and if you're just a if you if you just want to talk about the things that connected with you it's going to be different for every person and you you don't have that like bonding over the Marvel universe for instance like mm-hmm. what about the Marvel universe really grabs me there are several things but but 
but not enough that I want to spend a lot of time talking about all the stuff that doesn't, you know? Right. And that's just, you know, that's hard about rock and roll too. I mean, I, I, I listened to the strokes yesterday. Hmm. I wanted to hear the strokes. I hadn't heard the strokes in, in 10 years. And I, I was like, I want to hear that. I want to try and remember that feeling that I heard the first time I heard the strokes and felt like, Oh shit. Why didn't I think of that? Right. They were definitely one of those bands. Yeah. Why didn't I think of that? It was right there. It was sitting there right all along. And, uh, and nobody thought of it until they thought of it. How, how did it feel after, what was it, about 2000, 2001 probably was when their record hit big. How, how's it feel now? 2001 is when the record hit big, and I can't separate that from the fact that that is when the first Long Winners record came out. I can't separate it from 9-11 because they had to pull that song New York City Cops uh, from the album. Um, they, cho- they chose to because they thought it was in you know, poor taste given what happened. Yeah. So 2001. Wow. And that's when, um, wow, really? 2001. First Long Winners record came, or yeah, First Long Winners record was done. It didn't come out until 2002, but it was, we were done making it. And then the Strokes record came out and it was like, oh, wow, fuck. Right. That sound. Dang, 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 dang. You know, and, and, and 5,000 bands duplicated that but it had it had a lot of energy it had a lot of it had a lot of swagger but without too without too much obvious like you know that whatever that dumb song by that australian band the are you gonna be my girl and it was like oh that's so yeah it was easy swagger it felt natural and it was um Minimalist is the wrong word, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't overdone. It was. Uh, yeah. It was just pretty much just like straight up rock and roll. Where it's another one of those things like like the faces. The faces come along, and you're like, ah, why? You know, why did people not do this before? It's like the Rolling Stones, like more distilled in some right. ways. And, right. You know, there's those bands or Pixies or these bands that come along. And you're like, oh man, that's that's why did nobody do this before? Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like when that first Long Winners record came out, the reaction from people was like, oh, yes, this. I remember that all music guide review <laughs> made me so mad. Everybody would say you sounded like REM and I never understood that. Yeah, that I personally sounded like Michael Stipe. Well, yeah, that the well and that the band sounded like REM, which I maybe I just think of REM as a different band than the one they're comparing it to. But like, I mean, I can hear how something like what, maybe Cinnamon has some instrumentation that could be reminiscent of a like early to mid nineties REM, but well, also it had, does was that one Pete Buck, Pete Buck played on? Yeah, it actually has Pete Buck on. And there, there, there was a, there was a review uh, during that era that was like, this band sounds like REM and they actually got Peter Buck to play on it. That is a bridge too far. Yeah. But like, that's so that's so lame i mean i remember he um produced a feelies album i liked a lot in college and played guitar on one of the songs but it's it still sounded like the feelies it didn't sound like rem i mean yeah yeah you got a bad rap for a while as long as we're uh digging up old wounds you got a bad rap for a while for the whole like well people talk about this band because it has people from other bands in it that are more famous and it's like that it's missed the entire point of of why you know especially those first couple albums have such a place in my heart they yeah. they're just a really just fucking good albums 
They yeah, don't but, sound. They don't sound like anybody. I just don't get that. They don't. It, it, but uh, you know, I I can't. When I think about all the bands that came out, all the bands of my friends, all the bands that came out during that era that didn't get any attention, that didn't that didn't move the needle at all. Um, I can't look back and, you know, through that whole period, I kept, I kept really, really, I mean, more than anything, really wanting to be, uh, to be suddenly important in that way that sometimes, I mean, kind of not sometimes every season, there's a band that's suddenly important and you, you look at it, you listen to the music and you go, yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> I hear what's cool about that, that song, but I'm not sure if I get why this band is suddenly important and that band isn't, you know, right, like right. I, 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 I ended up meeting, uh, and really liking the singer of clap your hands, say, yeah, uh, or foster the people or, or, uh, I mean the, the number of bands that in the course of my own career in music were just the band of the moment. And I've met enough of those people and been friends with enough of them that very few of them have a death cab career where they're just kind of the band of the moment multiple times until they, until they're a stadium band and you kind of go, wow, how, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Like clap your hands, say, yeah, isn't a st- it didn't, it didn't keep happening for them, but they definitely had a, had a six month period there where they were the, they were the band that people were talking about. Yeah. And, and when you ask them about that experience, they're like, oh, man, I wish that that hadn't happened. I, w- I wish that we had had a chance to be more organic and take our time. And it was really weird and it blew up and then it, w- then it went away. And I think about at, when I was putting out those first couple of records and I just wanted to be the band of the moment so badly. And, and then I realized like I was lucky I was lucky to get the attention I got and clap your hands. Say, yeah, I was lucky to get the attention they got. Like you really only, you, you really only get your shot at it. And I had mine and there was so much snark in the air at the time. And some of it landed on us, but, but what is our, what is our meta metacritic rating? I mean, it's still above 60, you know, like, I think we were, I think we were, we were appraised pretty accurately in the, in the long run, you know? Really? I mean, I don't know. I would, I would love to have, I mean, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot came out right around the same time as the first long winner's record and Yankee hotel Foxtrot had all that story about how they took it to the majors and the majors didn't want it and they got it back and put it out themselves. And it was a validation of, of indie culture and a validation of fuck the man, even though they put it out themselves on another imprint of their major label. And they made that film. Right. Where they didn't, where they spent the there was whole a lot, movie. There was a lot of stories. Also, just the whole, like, how it supposedly started with the idea of, like, hearing those weird radio broadcasts, you know, that, yeah. that or to, to seem to be to no one in particular. There's all kinds of things NPR could write a story about with regard to that album. It was hella NPR'd. Yep. Um, and, and it was indie rock in NPR for sure. Everybody had a story. And it was, it was right at the peak moment of that, of that notion, that sort of 
Sean Marshall, Cat Power, uh, Bonnie Prince Billy idea of indie rock artist who doesn't want to be famous, who's really tortured by their fame and tortured by their own complicated mental world. And so, and so they didn't want it, man. They didn't right. want it. They were forced into it because their work was so amazing. And, you know, and, and sitting on the other side of it and saying like, well, Bonnie Prince Billy may be living in a, in a tree fort and he may not want it, but he sure seems to pose for a lot of photo shoots. Like, do you know how long it takes to, to do a photo shoot for, for a, a major feature in a magazine? Somebody, somebody is paying his publicist. Yeah, it takes a whole day of standing around getting your picture taken to get that picture that's on the cover of uh, Mojo or whatever. And, and there's a different picture of him every time I open a magazine. So he's doing a lot <laughs> of photos. Janine Garofalo uh, on regarding Eddie Vedder in a Kaiser helmet. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you don't want to be photographed in a Kaiser helmet, like, stop showing up at photo shoots wearing a Kaiser helmet. Yeah, right, pretty like, much. You know, if you, if you quit being... But I, it is certainly way more complicated than that. It's super complicated. But it's, but it's, yeah. But Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, aesthetically, was exploring a lot of similar ground uh, to the first Long Winters record, right? Hmm. We were using Americana styles but we were spending a lot of time with broken keyboards and weird little like xylophones and stuff before before that became ubiquitous and they were yankee hotel foxtrot has a lot of sort of sonic landscapes which was also what we were trying to do on the first long winners record and we were making those records or they were somewhat contemporaneous with one another like i like I, I forget when Yankee Hotel Foxtrot came out, but it was all—it was already after we had finished the first Long Winter's record, and maybe they came out about the same time. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and the way that their record was discussed in the popular culture, as though it was, a, you know, a life-changing event for everybody, and a, and a real like new idea, and and sitting with our record kind of there in my hand, offering it up to the world and saying like, this is a, this was motivated by similar, similar ideas and the song and there are songs here that are, that are equivalent, equivalently good. And to have it sort of not, not only like not, uh, be embraced at that same level, obviously, but but not discussed in that way. Even not the language used to describe our record was not the same, and 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 that was the that was the big uh, my big my initial big resentment toward the Decemberists was that <laughs> the, their their record came out and people were like, it is the literary, it is this is the music that smart people will listen to. Have you heard these lyrics? Have you? Have you sat down with your pince-nez on and read these lyrics? Because this is where, this is the future of smart people music. And I was like, I also have lyrics that, that I, would, I would love it if you would read them a couple of times, everyone. Hello? And, you know, and our, our reviews were like, you know, indie rock stuff. 
here here's a band making some indie rock music and and you know that there it is right uh, that's what we were doing but but i i could never quite figure out how to get yourself in the lens of that of that culture sniper and 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 honestly everybody that makes stuff kind of wants to be there and then as soon as they are they don't want to be there and they disavow ever having wanted to be there mm-hmm. well cuz it it happens before you have time to really realize it's happening sometimes well that i i may have told you about this before but in ni- early 1991 i was sitting in a cafe in seattle and reading I think the rocket, which was one of, at the time Seattle had like four alternative newspapers and the rocket was the rock and roll one. And it was a long interview with Nirvana pre nevermind during which Kurt Cobain kind of spent a lot of the interview saying like, we're going to be the biggest band in the world. We are the, we're, our record is the best record anybody's ever made. And we're going to be huge and just really love like, like, lapping it up and loving it and and wanting wanting it you know and i remember reading it at the time also being a 21 year old who wanted to be a rock star and being like yeah man like that's the attitude that's that rock and roll attitude and and there was some irony in it for sure but he was also saying we've made the best rock and roll record you've ever heard and i can't wait for you to hear it and he was talking about nevermind but it hadn't come out yet. And he was just like, this is going to blow people's minds. It's fucking killer. And fast forward a year and reading the press where he was like, this record didn't sound like we wanted it to. It was too polished. It was too rock and roll. The major label hired an outside mixer and made it all slick. And that's not who we are. And you know, the story had really changed. And I imagine in his mind, it was true what he was saying, but, and I've never been able to find that rocket interview. I'd, I've never heard anything like that from him that I know of. Yeah, it was really. I'm not, I'm not a scholar of Kurt Cobain, but I, I'm much more familiar with the other kind of story. Yeah, right. The other story became the canon, uh, but the, but that, but the early, the early talk from him on that was like, this is going to kick ass, and. Because they were tw- 21 and had made a killer rock record and they, you know, they had to know it, right? Uh, and they were excited. They were excited. Because you don't wear a Kaiser helmet to a photo shoot unless you wear, want your picture taken wearing a Kaiser helmet. And right. honestly, you don't make a kick-ass rock record unless you want to make a kick, you want to be a kick-ass rock band. Yeah, and you always got to remember that there was no Nirvana before Nirvana. That, you know, whatever happened in the two or three years after that, you see as the, you know, there was a precedent with them. But it was, a, I mean, it must have been, seemed like a really big deal because it, of all the bands that you could pick out of the lineup in 1990 or 91, they would not necessarily be the one you would pick to, to be the ones that get a DGC contract and be, get the biggest record in years, right? I mean, and you tell me. Yeah, no, I don't. I, Wouldn't I don't. you pick the Fastbacks before that? Well, or Mudhoney. I mean, around Seattle, like what was cool, like Mudhoney was cool. Mm-hmm. And Nirvana was kind of seen as like Mudhoney wannabes. Um, because Mudhoney had that like, fuck you, man. That was in their sound and in their attitude. And if you look at Mudhoney photo shoots 
from that era. They didn't show up wearing a Kaiser helmet. They showed up covered in vomit. <laughs> and, and so, according to the standards of the time, according to the language of the time, they were way cooler and more authentic and 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 their sound reflected that and their and the shit that they said i mean they were funny wry but also they were they were the <coughs> they were the punk rock monkeys or the punk rock uh, hard days night where instead of saying like turn left at greenland they would take the reporter's microphone and and dunk it in a bucket of beer and say, this interview's over, fuck you. And by, by comparison, Nirvana was polished and, I mean, more polished and more ambitious. And, you know, they had that, they, there was that song, I mean, there were, there were, there were a couple of Nirvana lyrics that were kind of cribbed out of Mudhoney lyrics, enough that it was noticeable and that people remarked on it. Wow. Like, uh, didn't, uh, didn't Mudhoney already write that song? I think they did. But the Nirvana version of it was just a little bit more listenable. Um, so, and also, you know, we think of Kurt Cobain as being very photogenic now, but, but, that, but they weren't very photogenic. Like, the, just the contrast between Chris, who was 6'7", and Kurt, who was 5'7", was, it was weird looking. Right, I mean, they, they they were only cute after after they had a little bit of style put on them. Well, so Kurt Cobain had almost like almost like a like a Manson vibe sometimes. Yeah, right. He he and, looked he looked really manic and bad skin and didn't know how to you know that whole period where he was dyeing his hair black and stuff. Just no, thank you. But after the fact, you look back and, and uh, it all seems like it was, it was fated to be. When I got to Seattle, they were already a, they were a big band because Bleach had come out and they were, one of the, they were one of the big bands. But they were playing at the OK Hotel. It's not like they were even playing the showbox. Um, they, were, they could sell three, 400 tickets. And... People, it's people weren't like snipping off a lock of his hair or anything. Yeah. Um, but then that record came out, and boy, it really connected, and it connected, connected with uh, with everybody immediately. Mm-hmm. Twenty five years ago, twenty four years ago, mm. twenty four years ago this month, right? It came out in August or September. Right, right. I think I, I first heard it on MTV. I think I didn't even hear it on the. I don't. I. You know what? I might have heard it on the college radio station, but I, I very specifically remember when the video because I was watching MTV a lot then, yeah. and when the video came out and I taped it and like I was in, in its thrall. I thought it was one of the greatest songs I ever heard. Yeah, it was such a good song that even Al Yankovic's version of it was something that I wanted to hear. Like I. It would it come. Had so many, it had so many good parts to it. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm I, I say this too much, but there was so many hooks in that song. But the hooks were 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 so sometimes so weird or just so satisfying. I mean, like you know, just I mean, the drums on that song alone are just like, yeah, 
I know. And wasn't he a fairly recent addition to the band at that point? Yep, yep. He was an outsider. Not even from the Northwest, man. Ugh. He's some. He's from Virginia. This interview's over. Fuck your corporate rock magazines, man. <laughs> Here we are. Here we Here are, are, 25 years later, and that's our legacy, right? <laughs> it's not like... It's not like, oh, yes, the Freedom Riders. <laughs> oh, yes, the, uh, we, we ended the war in Vietnam. No, it's like, oh, fuck your corporate rock magazines, man. <laughs> Yay. Hooray, that's us. <coughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. To learn more now, visit braintreepayments.com slash supertrain. If you're a mobile app developer, and I know many of you are, please check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution that is used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery. Perhaps you've heard of these. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless and magical, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree is helping solve the problem of mobile card abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. you got to see this for yourself. With Braintree, you get a full-stack payment solution. I mean, support for all payment types that your customers might want. You can start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration across all platforms with superior fraud protection, customer service, and yes, fast payouts. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, please go to braintreepayments.com slash supertrain. Our thanks to Braintree for taking the pain out of mobile payments and for supporting Roderick on the line. That'll be our epitaph. I'm depressed now. Sorry, yeah, I know it happens a lot. Uh, it happens a lot. And what? Oh, you know what the latest one for me was? What? It was realizing that Barack Obama was elected president of the United States when he was forty-seven years old. Ooh. And uh, at the time when he was forty-seven years old, uh, I was what thirty? Not thirty. Eight? What was I? Thirty-nine. You weren't, you weren't that young. <laughs> I was thirty-nine, but able to say like, "Oh, right. Well, forty-seven, of course, is like presidential age." Right. It's not like he's getting elected president at thirty-nine, which is still a young. Yeah, it's a young man. Mm-hmm. Thirty-nine. Yeah. Still got a lot of living to do. A lot of living. Mm-hmm. But now, Merlin, next mm. month I will be forty-seven years old. Mm. I will be 47 years old, and I can't even make it through the primary of a Seattle City Council election, let alone get elected president of the United States. You didn't win that primary? Didn't win it. Huh. Was it close? Wasn't even close. Hmm. Was not close. (laughs) Pretty definitive. Not really Hmm. a lot of opportunity to Hmm. step in and say, like, I believe there were some voting irregularities. I would, I demand a recount. Mm -hmm. Like, none of that was, that uh there was not an opportunity for that. Uh, it's been a, been a couple, <coughs> couple weeks now. Uh, it's been a couple weeks. Just about, weeks. just about a couple, couple weeks tomorrow. Couple weeks, yeah. Yep, yep. Sort of still, still processing it. You know, in the in the same way that they used to say that uh, if you smoked pot, it would you, you could still detect it in your hair and your fingernails. Mm. 
several weeks after, months after. And if you smoke a cigar, you'll get high again. Mm-hmm. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. So how's your how's your hair doing? Is it coming out? Uh, the pot? The of elections? Uh, I don't even know uh, what know, the analogy is anymore. I'm just, I'm just cycling. I'm just pushing it out through my pores. I'm just... I'm just I'm sure that I'm sure that campaign is still going to be in my fingernails and my hair for a while. But I've but the you know, the part of it that would be detectable in my urine is maybe now starting to pass. Hmm. Um, and I'm getting back on uh, I'm getting back on a regular a, a more a more normal even keel. You sound a lot better. I don't know what that's you I mean if that means anything, but you you sound better. You yeah, sound less, you sound less bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, you, if you want to wait a week, I, I, we could also talk about Evil Knievel. Well, yeah, I do want to. I, I want to share my whole experience with everybody, uh, and um, and I always knew that that would take a little bit of processing time. And I'm still, you know, I'm still processing it. So why don't we talk about Evil Knievel? And I was kind of kidding. <laughs> and I will put a bookmark, uh, you know, I'll put a, ta- a little, little uh, attack in it. Uh-huh. Uh, because I do want to, you know, I do want to, to discourse extensively on, on the experience now that I am not under such intense scrutiny. Right. Um, because I feel like I owe that to everybody. And also, I, it, would, it would be interesting for me, but... But uh, but I'm very very interested in Evil Knievel. I don't know why I brought it up. Is that a th- is that a thing that is is Evil Knievel back in the news? You know, you're talking about how you like, you know, like people talking about books kind of jump from one thing to the next. I do that sometimes when I'm watching TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one reason why I frequently don't watch a whole movie. Uh, yeah. So you have uh, one of those remote control uh, dinguses that allows you to to jump around, or are you talking about you actually? You actually touch the mouse pad. Oh, no. No, I mean, I, I have a television. I'm not an animal. You know, I watch things on the TV. But, um, yeah. You yeah. watch things on the TV, but they are coming from the internet. They can. They can. Oh, but you also have cable. No, I'm a cord cutter. So you cut the cord. I cut do you the cord. Have a, uh, do you have a disc or a a, a uh, a dirt. A I have dirt, a, a, blue, a Blu-ray slash DVD player that's not currently plugged in, but it's there if it's if it needs to be called upon. No, I mean they like a rooftop uh, uh, satellite. No. We dish. don't get we don't get any TV in the normal sense at our house, which is what makes going to a hotel room so staggering for my family. Because mm-hmm. my my kid's been brought up, you know, in a in a house that just doesn't have commercials. It's so weird because she loves them so much. Mm. She, I think it's her favorite part of the show. The commercials. Loves the commercials. Uh-huh. We've talked about this. Like, we'll be going out to eat because, you know, you can't go out to eat unless there's televisions everywhere. Right. And she'll just be rapt attention. She'll just be staring at, like, the infomercial about golf or well, whatever. Well, they're much louder and much brighter than the normal show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, no, she's entirely entranced by those. But it's it's strange because, you know, that means that she's grown up watching, like, reality shows like uh, Project Runway where they do the whole big, like, cliffhanger and then they go to commercial, and then they come back, and there's the cliffhanger music, and they say what they just said right before they went to commercial. And it's like, well, why did they, why did they say that twice? It's like, well, because there was like two minutes of commercials there that we didn't see. Right. <laughs> no, I don't know. I was texting you last night because I was watching a movie about Evil Knievel, and it just made me think of you. Because in the first few minutes, they interviewed Matthew McConaughey and Guy Fieri and Uncle Bob Einstein, all in the first few minutes. 
Uh, so you, yeah, you sent me on a little bit of a Bob Einstein trip last night, where I I watched uh, I watched his comedians in cars getting coffee. Oh, good. Did you did you enjoy that with the uh, Mercedes three hundred SEL? Well, that's uh, a hell of a car. It's a beautiful car. I I was looking for one of those for a long time. I thought that I would. Uh, I thought that that would be the car that I and I actually went and test drove some. And it had a three hundred horsepower engine in a car that size. Uh yeah, two hundred eighty ho- horsepower. Uh, yeah, it was a it was like the big Mercedes V eight that they kind of just slammed into the regular size car. And uh, yeah, they're they're amazing. But you know, they were amazing at the time. The problem is now, any like any like base model Kia with a four cylinder motor, we have automotive technology has improved so much that you know through the through the alchemy of like torque and and revs and tuning they have basically achieved with these tiny little motors in these tiny little cars an ability to go way faster well it feels like the the pickup is is where it's changed it feels like every you know, you, you we lived through those years where pretty much every American car was not that super good. Um, some were nicer than others. But it feels like any car, American or internationally produced, almost any car from the last even 10 years that I sat down in felt fine and had enough pickup to like be able to get you onto the highway. And it just didn't used to be that way. Yeah. Well, and Is what, that fuel injection? What's called, how, how do they do that? Yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. It's uh, Physics. It's yeah. The cars don't have carburetors anymore. They're all fuel injected, and they all are geared uh, in a in a way where your first gear and your second gear are really torquey. So they so you get all this off the line sort of jump. Like my my high school car was a nineteen. <clears throat> this is before I bought the Fiat. My the first. The first real car I had, I inherited from my dad, and it was a 1972 Chrysler Newport Imperial. And it was a coupe, a two-door, with a sort of opera window uh, that had a, and it had a vinyl top, and the color was like metallic copper, a metallic copper coupe but wow but uh when you think of a coupe like a like a two-door you think of it being a a hot rod car but this chrysler newport imperial was 45 feet long (laughs) and was gonna look this up was in the style of the time right um pre pre pre-energy crisis um Oh my god! What you know, a boat! It, and that is exactly what we called it—the boat. That's a two-door. Yeah, it's it's just the trunk looks like it's twenty feet long. Uh, the the trunk is twenty feet long. Oh my god! And um, and the inside was a was like upholstered in exactly the fabric that you would you would have on a like a grandmother's couch. Maybe it was a 74. Mm-hmm. It was. It was a 74 Imperial. Um, huge, you know, and, 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 the, and the, the... Oh, it the, looks kind of like an LTD. Yeah, but bigger. Um, and, and, and Chrysler. Right, right. 
But uh, no, I mean, just in terms of like like I think of like like a LTD or Continental from Ford is what it reminds me of. It looks like it's a nod to that, but it's a little sportier, and it's it's long in the front, it's long in the back, it's long in the middle. Uh, this yeah. is impossibly. Oh my God, this is ridiculous. And so my Chrysler had a four forty, like a very very big motor. The displacement of the of the motor was pretty much as large as you could get. Um, there there obviously were bigger motors. The Cadillac had like a four seventy two or something, but but four forty was very very big engine and and yet the car was geared and designed to cruise on America's highways and from a stoplight if I would slam down the pedal it would immediately burn two gallons of gasoline (laughs) but the car didn't like peel out it didn't it it sort of you know it's its initial reaction to having the the gas pedal slammed down was sort of like, oh, God, really? Okay. And it, it like lurched forward and then hit its stride at about 65 miles an hour. So, Do you know what it weighed? Um, 5,000 pounds. Yeah, 5,000 pounds. <laughs> it weighed it weighed over it weighed over 2 tons. Yeah. So it would it would at about six, if if you were doing a quarter mile against somebody, you know, like any Scirocco or any Volkswagen Golf could just school it in a quarter mile. But if you were doing a mile or you know, or a or a 2 mile straightaway like forget about it. This car could could go 140 miles an hour, and and it just wanted to. Like the faster it went, it just kind of would sit down on its haunches. It just kind of got. It would just get lower and darker. Like there was a gear. It switched gears at 110. There was another gear <laughs> at 110 miles an hour. It would go into a further like overdrive and you'd be going like it would downshift at 110 which means that it was meant to stay up there they they designed it in such a way that it was like well at 110 you're going to want to have a cruising gear at that point right so that mentality and i mean and obviously it was it was burning a, a a gallon of gas every every minute that mentality compared to cars now where none of these little cars can go 100 miles an hour and if they and if you got one up to 100 miles an hour you wouldn't want to stay there they'd shake themselves apart but so that mercedes that 300 it's it's a fast car and a and a and a very cool smooth running car but it's the same thing it's designed to go 100 miles an hour all day long and and kind of sit there like a like a brick on ice. My stepfather, I'm pretty sure, had the successor, which is the Chrysler New Yorker Brome. Oh, that's four, a big four door. car. That's a I remember really big it, car. it was hard to close the doors. And they were so they were, it was so, it had electric windows, which of course made it even heavier. Yeah. It was it was so impossibly heavy. 
it was it was hard to close the doors because the doors themselves weighed so much. Yeah, well, had, I mean, there was a lot of velocity. Once you got it moving, you could like lose a kid in that door. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had we had a lot of fun in that car, but unfortunately, I was not. You know, I was a late bloomer, so all of the great, like all the the, the wonderful sexcapades that I potentially could have had if I was a little bit more of a of a fast mover. By the time. By the time I was ready to to really make out with somebody in the in the on the comfortable couch in the back seat of that car, uh, the car was gone. Did I ever tell you what what happened to that car? Mm-mm. I got back to I got back to Anchorage um, after some trip, and I was like, "Where's the boat?" And my dad said, "Oh, I gave it to the city of Fort Yukon." My dad at the time was was working as a um, – the city of Fort Yukon had encountered some financial problems and was kind of going bankrupt. And it was, it was governed by a board, by a kind of city council, but it was, it was also part of a native corporation. And, um, and so my dad went there to help them straighten out their town and kind of ended up for a time – being a sort of unelected mayor, chairman, or, you know, like, consigliere. Oh, just city. like kind of an ad hoc uh, burgermeister? Yeah, somebody to come up there and, 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 and he, my dad and my uncle both sort of helped the city of Fort Yukon over the course of several years figure out how to govern itself. Because there were alliances between families in the town and, and there was a board that was sort of run by a guy and they had, in the style of the time, like there was the town, but they also owned an airline. The town owned its own airline. Um, and they had, and they were right on the river and it was a confusing place. But anyway, we used to go up there quite a bit when my dad would have business there but I came home from some long trip and he said, I gave your car to the city of Fort Yukon. And I said, that was my car. It still had st- my stuff in the trunk. Oh, man. Did you open the trunk and empty it out? And he was like, oh, no, <clears throat> I didn't. And I was like, there was, there was, my stuff was in it, like uh, in, the, in, the, in the back seat, my coat and um, a lot of things. Uh, that seems really, I mean, there was like a package of Oreos in the glove box that I was still working my way through. And he was like, well, you know, they, for whatever reason I needed, I, I felt like it was sitting in my driveway and, and they needed it. And so it's now the, it's now the car, it's now the city car. I mean, there were other cars in Fort Yukon, but this was now the city government car. Jeez, I, I mean, that's, a, that's very generous, but like, what a cautionary tale. I never want to do that to my kid's car. Well, and also, in order to get it to Fort Yukon, he had to drive it up to the end of the road and put it on a barge and ship it down the Yukon River because there's no road to the city of Fort Yukon. You can only get there by airplane or by barge. And he barged it to Fort Yukon. And then of course the river froze and uh, you know, I was arriving home in 
in December or something, and it was like there's no getting you can't get the car. If even if even if you went up there and said give me my car back, there wouldn't be any way to retrieve it. That that took a lot of work. It was a big yeah. My dad, uh, you know, he he never did anything half-assed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true. He did everything <laughs> half-assed, but he never he did not give my car away half-assed. He gave my car away in the in the most fully asked way possible. 